0: this morning we are continuing in our series, which I've entitled uh, Confronting the Culture, in which I've been aiming to equip you as the people of God to be salt and light in the midst of the decay and darkness of this dying culture. And we are picking up where we left off two weeks ago. What a privilege to have Don with us last week. But uh, two weeks ago, we began considering the marks of biblical manhood. And that flows out from our having learned that man is a creature, that he is an image bearer, and that he is gendered. Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. The creature made in God's image reflects God's image by being either male or male. Or female. And having brought that truth to bear on the wickedness of the transgender movement, we discovered, among other things, that men and women are different. They are alike in their humanity, unified as equal image bearers of God, and yet they are distinct in their gender, complementing one another as a harmony of praise to God who created them. And a consequence of that truth is that men glorify God when they look and speak and behave like men. And women glorify God when they look and speak and behave like women. But then we asked, but what does that mean? Aside from the obvious biological differences, what does it mean to be a biblical man and not a woman? What does it mean to be a biblical woman and not a man? If God created men and women to be a harmony of praise to his glory in our distinctiveness, well then just like each member of a choir must learn to sing his own part, singing notes that are distinct from the other parts but which harmonize to produce a beautiful sound, so also men and women must learn to sing their own part, so to speak, to conduct themselves in a manner distinct from one another, but which behaviors, when brought together, harmonize to bring glory and honor to the beauty of God's design. And certainly the alternative, the world's alternative, has not succeeded. Yes, there have been abuses that have been perpetrated in the name of male and female complementarity, But the answer to those abuses is not to so stress the truth of men's men's and women's equality that our distinctiveness is minimized or even altogether lost. The chaos the chaos of our times only underscores that deprecating the distinctiveness of masculinity and femininity does not result in blessing because it is rebellion against God's good design. God has designed that men flourish most when women act like women. And God has designed that women flourish most when men act like men. And so we began two weeks ago with the nature of biblical manhood. Who does the Bible say that man is? And I mentioned that I've gleaned no fewer than nine marks of biblical manhood. We got through two of them last time. And so I'll spend just a few moments reviewing where we've been. That first mark was, number one, that a biblical man is a leader. He is a leader. And we establish that from several passages. Ephesians 5.23 says the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is is the head of a woman. The man's headship speaks of his leadership. And in addition to those clear passages in the New Testament, we found that the opening chapters of Genesis also testify to the truth of male headship. We saw that God created the man first. We saw that he gave his command not to eat from the tree to Adam even before Eve was created, which means that Adam was to be Eve's teacher of the word of God. God created the woman from the man's body and for the man's help. Adam names the woman and the man is the one responsible to initiate this new household by leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife. All of those truths communicate male headship. And they're especially significant because being drawn from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the principle of the complementary roles of male headship and female submission do not have their origin in the fall. They are not the result of sin's corruption of our relationships. They are rooted in God's very good creation of man and woman. And so, fundamental to the identity of man from the very beginning of his existence, before his corruption and fall into sin, is that the biblical man is a leader. And we mentioned that the heart of that leadership is not license, it is responsibility. Biblical leadership isn't so much the right to govern as you see fit as much as it is the stewardship to lead in a way that honors God and that benefits those you lead. And we see that in how God holds Adam accountable for sin's entrance into the world, even though Eve was the one who sinned first. As the leader, the man bears the burden of primary accountability for the spiritual and moral health of the family. And so we concluded that masculine leadership means taking responsibility. It means being willing to be held accountable even when you personally may not be at fault. It means that there is nothing that is less manly than passively abdicating your leadership role and shirking responsibility. It means being imaginative and reflective thinking creatively and strategically about what needs doing for the family to thrive. It means taking initiative so that the burden of the primary responsibility to make the household run doesn't fall upon your wife while you passively respond to her initiative. It means making decisions with clarity and conviction. It means confronting conflict with boldness and grace. It means bearing the burden of having the final say in the household, knowing that God will hold you accountable if you fail to lead according to righteousness and wisdom. A biblical man is a leader who takes responsibility. And if you want more about that, look at the message from two weeks ago. The second mark of biblical manhood that we explored last time is number two a biblical man is a lover. He is one who loves. He exercises his leadership lovingly. And we saw how in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14, just after telling the Corinthians to act like men and be strong, Paul's next words are let all that you do be done in love. There is an unmistakable connection between acting like a man and loving Titus 2.2 2 and 1 Timothy 1, 1.5 make a similar point. We went into those last time. We spent quite a bit of time in Ephesians chapter 5 where in verses 25 to 33, Paul says three times that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church. Christ himself is the model. The greatest man who ever lived was love incarnate and his love for his bride becomes the pattern for every husband's love for his bride and we spoke about how Christ's love for the church is characterized above all by sacrifice husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her his was a sacrificial love The Lord Jesus Christ subordinated his own interests, convenience, and well-being to the benefit of his bride when he assumed her nature in order to pay her penalty. And from that, we learned that leadership is loving, that headship is humble, so far from manliness being an assertion of authority and still worse, the physical or spiritual abuse of a woman or children. It is the opposite. It is not forcing you to bear some burden as a result of me. It's sacrificing me that I might bear your burden. Do you see how gospel that is? Do you see how anti-gospel that any kind of abuse or authoritarianism is. It is the opposite of the gospel to say, I will inconvenience or even harm you so that I might be served, right? The gospel is, I will inconvenience myself. And even if it means harm to me, that I might serve you, that your burdens might be lifted, that I might bear that in your place, and so Jesus himself says in Luke twenty-two, twenty-seven: the one who reclines at the table and is waited on, he is greater than the one who serves him. But he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. This is the Lord of heaven and earth, the head over all things. He says, I am among you as the one who serves. That is unspeakable grace. And how did he serve them? By ordering every aspect of his life to result in the benefit of the ones he loved. It was nothing but pure, holy, manly strength that enabled him to say no to the temptations of Satan of the the temptations of the world that lay in Satan's power, to say no to any preference of his own comfort or ease over and above the benefit of the church. Biblical, loving leadership, men, means laying down your life in the day-by-day, moment-by-moment decisions of life together. It means sacrificing the fleshly comforts of idleness, ease, and recreation for the sake of benefiting those you love and are responsible to lead. I mentioned you don't go home from work. You go home to work. You go home to the good and noble work of giving yourself up in engaged, initiative-taking headship to, in service to your family. Because Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I am among you as the one who serves. You see, the gospel turns selfish boys into selfless men. Mature, masculine, biblical love consists in sacrificially laying down your life in the service of others. Biblical man doesn't make excuses for his sins or his failures, He doesn't shift the blame onto others. Biblical men are eager to take responsibility, to lovingly sacrifice themselves for the benefit and protection of the ones they love, even being willing to shoulder the blame or the consequences for something they didn't do if it means protection from danger and deliverance unto blessing for their loved ones. After all, it was God who came to the head of the household first, Adam, Where are you? He comes to see the man first because we are accountable. Well, the biblical man is a leader, the biblical man is a lover. That brings us to a third mark of biblical manhood, and that is number three that the biblical man is a provider. He is a provider. And of course, the relationship between these marks isn't that they are totally distinct from one another. The leadership is loving, uh, that love is marked by sacrifice. Well, it's also the case that loving leadership is marked by providing for those you lead. And we see that, uh, the biblical man is a provider, we see that in a number of ways. Perhaps most clearly, back in Ephesians chapter 5, so you can turn there, where again, Christ's love for the church becomes the pattern for the husband's love for his wife. In addition to verse 25, which sets forth the, gener- the general principle, you have verses or 28 and 29, which say, "...so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." Christ as the great bridegroom of the church nourishes and cherishes the church because she is his own flesh she is the body of Christ his bride and in the same way a man's loving headship over his wife ought to be marked by nourishing and cherishing her and both of these words give great insight into what it means for a man to be a provider in the first place, Christ and biblical husbands nourish their wives. This translates the Greek word ektrephō. In the New Testament, it's used only here in Ephesians 5.29 and then again in 6.4, where it speaks of fathers bringing their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used many times, always in the context of either raising children... Or providing for the needs of others. So, an example comes in Genesis chapter 45. Joseph is consoling his brothers after they have sold him into slavery in Egypt, and they've come to see that he's now second in command, and he tells them he doesn't hold it against them. He tells them that he recognizes God's sovereign hand in sending him there to preserve life through the famine that would come. Then he tells them to send word to their father Jacob that they should all leave their land and come settle in Goshen. And he says in Genesis forty-five eleven, there I will also provide for you this word. For there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. So you see, there's a famine coming, but I will provide for you. I will arrange that your needs are fulfilled taken care of so that you won't starve. This, the Apostle Paul says, is the responsibility of the husband toward the wife. The man must see to it that the physical needs of his wife and family are met, but they won't starve, that there's food on the table and clothes on their backs. Then there's the word cherish, thalpo. Literally, the term means to make warm but in the sense of to care for so similar to the previous word the, in the new testament thalpo is used only here in ephesians 5 and in one other place first thessalonians 2 7 where paul says but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children that's the sense tenderly cares for My caring for my children, in this sense of making them warm, means that I make sure that they are clothed and sheltered and that they are not so destitute that they're left out in the cold. A husband cherishes his wife in this sense, then, when he tenderly cares for her physical needs, not unlike the way a loving mother does whatever is necessary to care for her child. The emphasis isn't on the husband parenting the wife, of course, but on so totally giving himself to providing for the needs of his wife that it approximates the way a mother so totally gives herself to provide for the needs of her children. And these needs that a man is to provide for are both physical and spiritual. In the first place... A man is to provide for his family physically. That's the most natural sense of nourish and cherish from Ephesians 5. But that's also confirmed by the teaching of the opening chapters of Genesis, which have proven so foundational for us in our study of mankind's identity. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. It it all comes back to the beginning. God does not hide his intentions and purposes for mankind. He he sets it out for us right at the beginning. And of course here where there is no sin or corruption, it provides us with something of a pristine look at God's design for men and women. And you see it uh, in Genesis chapter 2 after the text describes the creation of man from the dust. And then some of the beautiful features of the lush garden of Eden. Genesis 2.15 says, Then Yahweh God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Literally, to work it and to watch over it. And we'll get to the second word, but we're concerned with that first word first. God put man into the garden to work From the beginning of man's existence, before his fall into sin, man was created to be a worker. I have provider as the heading for this thing. You could say a worker as well. And so, brothers, work is not a product of the curse. Man did not become a worker after the fall. His work got more difficult, but... Work itself is not a product of sin. Work is man's natural element. It is his original environment. And what was that original environment? It was paradise. I know it may seem hard to believe, especially in our culture, which idolizes idleness and leisure and recreation and retirement, But work was part of the original paradise. Man is a worker. We were created to be employed with something. We were created to be ruling and subduing the earth according to God's mandate. To be partnering with the God who completed his work of creation on the sixth day and rested from his work on the seventh day to be partnering with the God of whom Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. To be working along with him in such a way that through your labors, the rest of the earth would reflect the order and the beauty and the glory of the Garden of Eden. Men, one of our chief temptations in this life is the temptation to laziness, to procrastination, to indolence, to an undisciplined life. We're tempted to view work as a necessary evil rather than a blessing from heaven. The Bible tells us that when we get lazy, when we run from our responsibility to work, we are acting against something native to our God-given Constitution as men. Biblical men are not lazy. They are workers. They are hard workers. And so you need to fight the temptation to slothfulness by considering that work is part of your identity, part of who God created you to be. And the Lord your God has created you to work hard precisely so that you can earn enough money to provide for the physical needs of those whom God entrusts to you to nourish and to cherish, especially your wife. And we see this even in the way the curse comes upon man and woman in Genesis 3. In response to mankind's sin, God curses the man and the woman in different ways according to the distinct spheres of responsibility that he's given to them and the roles that he's given them to fulfill. He curses the woman with respect to her domestic relationships, first with respect to childbearing and then in her relationship to her husband, Genesis three sixteen. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And then God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Takes a long time to explain that very difficult phrase in the Hebrew, but the short version is her desire will be for her husband in the same way that sin's desire was for Cain. In Genesis 4, 7, you have the same phrase, right? Uh, If you do not, if you not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. So for Eve's desire to be for your husband it's to rule over him the way sin's desire is to rule over us and we need to resist it see the woman is cursed not with the role of submission that predated the fall no she's cursed with discontent with her role of submission such that she desires to occupy her husband's role and rule over him in a way that will breed conflict And then God curses the man with respect to his vocation as a worker of the ground. Look at verses 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Again, God doesn't curse Adam with work, same way he doesn't curse Eve with childbearing or submission. He curses them within their natural domain, within the roles he has already created them to occupy. And what would have been a delight to them and brought blessing to them is now difficult and painful and toilsome. But the key point to take away is that God curses the woman with respect to her natural pre-fall domain, which was to be a help to her husband and to bear and rear children. She is to be, as Titus 2.5 puts it, a worker at home. But then he curses the man with respect to his natural pre-fall domain, which is to engage in breadwinning labor in order to provide For his wife and family. Now, all of that underscores the truth that the primary burden, not the sole burden, but the primary burden for putting food on the table and a roof over the heads of the family falls to the husband, falls to the man. That does not mean that women cannot work. Not at all. In no era of history has that been the case. We'll see when we look at the nature of biblical womanhood that woman is a worker. It doesn't even mean that there aren't seasons in life where a wife can't work outside the home. There are those seasons. But it does mean that a husband ought never to willingly put his wife in a position to feel the pressure of having to earn money so that the family can survive. The husband ought never to willingly put his wife in a position to feel the pressure of having to earn money so that the family can survive. She has other responsibilities that she must tend to to ensure that the family survives. She ought not to feel the burden of this one as well. He is the one who lays down his life in diligent, sacrificial labor to provide for his family's needs. John Piper puts it this way. When there is no bread on the table, it is the man who should feel the main pressure to do something to get it there. A man will feel his manhood compromised if he, through sloth or folly or lack of discipline, becomes dependent over the long haul, he says not just during graduate school, on his wife's income. So what he's signaling is that there are seasons where it's appropriate Maybe there are no children in the house. And so it's right for a woman to help, you know, to to work while a husband goes through graduate school or, or seminary, right? That that's an acknowledged time of this is not how it's supposed to be. The roles are a bit reversed, but it's for a purpose and it's for a set time. And we will get out of this as soon as we can. It doesn't mean that somebody who desires to do this, but is physically incapable, is somehow less of a man. Again... I, though those words were chosen carefully a husband ought never to willingly put his wife in a position to feel the pressure right if it's through sloth or folly or lack of discipline but not incapacity right and in in, in, in whatever ways we fall short of that standard the response isn't to despair the response is to change course the response is to take steps of faithfulness even if you can't reverse it immediately Are you taking steps toward faithfulness to reach this standard? You say, Mike, what if I'm not married? How can I discharge my duty of physical provision without a wife to provide for? Well, you can still work hard at whatever it is that the Lord has given you to do. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You can develop a strong work ethic Habits that will put you in in a position to eventually secure a job that will provide for a family one day or will provide for the family of God right now. You can study, if you're a student, you can study diligently as you pursue a vocation that will allow you to be depended on as the one who bears primary responsibility for physical provision, which means you have to be an adult about the way that you think about your course of study, right? Right? cheese appreciation is not a good class to take in college right majoring in gender studies is not a good you know what I mean like what can I do what can I study that will put me in a position to provide for my family it might mean sacrificing those little boy romantic dreams of being an actor or being a baseball player or being you know what I mean I'm in LA I'm gonna make it you're probably not gonna make it you're probably gonna work at In-N-Out while you, while you become a, an adolescent until you're 40 years old, right? <laughs> Think through it. Think through, I have a responsibility, not maybe right this moment, but what's coming. And I want to put myself in a position to study something that will make me a useful person so that I can earn enough money to provide for a wife and children. Your attitude, men, cannot be, well, I mean, I don't have a wife or kids to care for, so I can work part-time, take it easy. Spend all my time in the gym or playing video games. No. For one thing, you're never gonna have a wife and kids if that's your <laughs> attitude toward work. But more than that, you weren't made to make to take it easy. You weren't made to chill. You were made to work hard for six days and rest on one. And so you can apply this teaching even as a single man by the way that you prepare for being a provider. And even more than that, I think that men can apply this principle in several ways, even in context with women who are not their wives. I think that this truth means that it's right for a man to pay for dinner on a date. Or if you were just out with a group of friends and a friend forgot her wallet, I think it's fitting for one of the guys to pay for her meal. It's right for men to make themselves useful enough to help other friends with fixing things around the house, especially tasks like that a husband or a father will usually take care of, right? Uh, a single friend all of a sudden has a plumbing problem. Well, you're, you're providing, in a sense, if you make yourself knowledgeable enough to, be, to say, let me come over, I can help you with that. At the very least, I can tell you if this plumber is charging you too much, right? <laughs> Just the other day, an older single lady came to the leadership for help with her living situation where she needed someone to advocate for her in the midst of a dispute, uh, the way that a husband might do if he were in the picture. And one of the young men was able to go with her and help her in that cause. That was a way of providing for her physical needs, not because she was part of the same household, not because they were married, but because she was part of the household of faith. And so there there are so many ways that, that single men even can be providers for those who are not their wives or children because manhood isn't just realized when you're a husband and a father you can be a man apart from those things though tending toward those things for most for most men but not only must a man provide for physical needs scripture also calls men to provide for spiritual needs as well men are not only to be physical providers they are to be spiritual providers In the same way, brothers, that you're responsible to put food on the table so that the family is well-nourished, you also are responsible to put spiritual food on the table so that the family may be sustained by the blessings of the word of God and the means of grace. And we see that in some of the same passages we've been to. We'll go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands are called to love their wives after the pattern of Christ's love for the church who gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ's purpose in giving himself up in sacrificial love for his bride was to purify her, was to sanctify her. His aim was her moral excellence. Now, husbands, you are not able to sanctify your wives in the same way that Christ does the church, but you are to be a sanctifying influence upon your wife. You are to order your life In the service of your wife's spiritual growth, it falls to you to be strategic in plotting out ways to see your wife grow in appropriating the means of grace, to see her pursue deeper communion with Christ, to put off patterns and habits of sin, and to put on patterns and habits of righteousness. You are to provide for her spiritually. And we see that also in the early chapters of Genesis. I I mentioned this already, but Genesis 2, 15 to 17 describes God as giving Adam the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then woman is created in the next paragraph. And so God entrusted Adam with the responsibility to be Eve's teacher of the word of God. He didn't create them both and give them that instruction at the same time. He created the man, gave him that instruction, then created the woman and she knew by 2.20, between 2.17 and 3.1, what it was that God had commanded them. Adam was to instruct her concerning the command the Lord had given him and to see to it that she apply it in the way that God intended. Now, of course, he fails miserably at that. But we do see that the original design was for the man to instruct his wife in the ways of Yahweh. And we see the Apostle Paul reaffirm this in 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-five, where he speaks about women remaining silent in the churches. And then he says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. And so husbands are to be competent enough in the scriptures that they are able to answer their wives' questions about spiritual matters in a way that's helpful and sanctifying. And it's not only their wives. In Ephesians 6, Paul commands children to obey their parents, and he uses that generic term, goneus, to speak of both mother and father. But then in verse 4, he specifically charges fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, of course, mothers are to teach their children a whole host of things. We'll see that in a little while when we talk about womanhood, including about the Lord and his word. But this text teaches us that a special responsibility falls on fathers to provide for the spiritual growth and maturity of their children. This means that a biblical man is a man of God. Brothers, you need to be a man of the word. Who knows the word and studies the word and loves the word and practices the word so that you might know your God. You want to be a man who walks with God so that you might make him known to those you have spiritual charge over. You are to be a man of prayer, of private prayer. A man like Jacob who wrestles with the Lord on your knees, who refuses to let go of him until you are blessed with the light of the Lord's countenance upon you so that you might go forth from the secret place transformed by that glory with the light of that glory reflecting off of you like it was off of Moses in Exodus 34 so that you might be a sanctifying influence on those you're entrusted to lead. You need to be a man who wages war against your own flesh and puts off sin and puts on righteousness. It means you need to be an exemplary man. As Paul exhorts the young men in Titus 2.7, he says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. You are to be the spiritual pace car of the family. You are to set the spiritual pace for others. You set a pattern that can be reliably followed. You can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. You to be a man who not only practices what you preach, but a man who practices before you preach because you recognize that the power of example often far outweighs the power of precept. People will much more quickly follow what you do, even than what you say. Being a spiritual provider means taking the lead to lead in family worship. You are to be the initiative taker in gathering the family for Bible reading, prayer, and singing to the Lord structure your home around the study of the word of God and prayer together. You're to be consistently praying for the sanctification of your wife and children, offering specific petitions for their growth in specific areas, which means you have your finger on the pulse of their spiritual needs and you you take those needs to the throne of grace and you plead with Christ to reign in their lives lord subdue this sin cultivate this grace you to lead your family to regular vital participation in the local church which means men you are to make it unthinkable for someone in your house to wake up on sunday morning and ask are we going to church today right. of course we are It's the Lord's day. We we get to gather with the people of God. We get to hear the skilled preaching of the word. We get to have fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Of course we are. Being a spiritual provider means making the spiritual atmosphere of your home one of discipleship. In Deuteronomy 6-7, Moses charges the people of God to teach his word diligently to their children. He says, talk about them. The commandments, talk about the law when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, it means driving the topics of conversation back to spiritual things at every turn, discussing moral and ethical issues, teaching your children how to assess the goings-on of the day through a biblical worldview. That commercial just said this, but is that true, guys? No. We went to a museum and it says the, this, was, this, this came about 65 million years ago. But is that true, John and Olivia? No. Right? It's, it's taking care to see that you're, you're guiding them. You're bringing the, the, the word and works of, the, of, of God to bear on every moment. The other day, John says to me, I saw a butterfly that had clear wings. I said, really? He says, that's so cool. And I was like, that is so cool. What's that teach us about God? And they're like, what? I was talking about a butterfly, right? <laughs> you know, you know, was it, was it beautiful? It was. Who made it? God made that thing beautiful. Do you think the one who made the beautiful thing is more beautiful or less beautiful than the thing that he, that he made? More beautiful. That's right. You think it was cool? It was. What's that mean? That God made it in Wisdom. Right That he's full? You just, you just bring it back to everything, because it's your life. This is not an idle word for you, to you, Moses says. It, indeed, it is your life. It also means taking the initiative in discipline. In Hebrews 12, the author urges us to receive the Lord's discipline as from a loving Father. He he assumes that fathers are the ones who lead in administering discipline to the children. Hebrews 12, 7. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 9. We had earthly fathers to discipline us. Again, that doesn't mean that mothers don't administer discipline. It simply means that fathers lead in taking the initiative to bring correction and instruction to the children when necessary. It should never be that a husband sits passively by because he just can't deal with it, he can't be bothered, while an openly misbehaving child is dealt with by their mother. Now, it may be that the mother is the right one in the moment to bring that correction. Maybe dad's not there. Maybe he's there and it's something specifically against what mom said not to do or to do and it didn't get done. But the father is never sitting there like, well, "You look, you're going to have to handle this because I just can't. No. <laughs> That is is not a spiritual provider in that moment. And there are so many, I could keep going, there are so many rich applications of the truth that the biblical man is a provider. We do need to hurry on to a fourth mark of biblical manhood, and that is, number four, that the biblical man is a protector. He is a protector. Back in Genesis 2.15, where we learn that God put Adam in the garden to cultivate the garden, it also says He he put him there to cultivate and keep it. And the word translated keep is the Hebrew term shamer, and it carries the connotation not only of maintaining the garden, but also watching over the garden. The same word is used in Genesis 3.24, where it speaks of the flaming sword that Yahweh stationed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, it says, to guard the way to the tree of life. And so it's used several times in the book of Job to speak of God watching over Job. And so Adam was to guard the garden. He was to watch over it. He was to be a protector from the very beginning of his existence. And we also see that principle in Ephesians 5. When we read that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, we need to remember that, that what that giving up entailed. It meant that the innocent Lord stepped in between his guilty bride and omnipotent justice. The wrath of God burned hot against us and threatened to break over our heads in the infinite horrors of eternal hell. We were in the gravest danger that anyone could conceive of. And what did Christ, our bridegroom, do? He stood in front of us and he bore our condemnation in our place. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Romans 5, 9 says that Christ died for us so that we would be saved from the wrath of God through him. There has been no greater demonstration of protection in the history of the world than the way Christ protected his bride from the wrath of God that she so richly deserved. And so when Paul calls husbands to love our wives like Christ loved the church, He calls us at the very least to protect them at all costs. And in the same way that a biblical man provides both physically and spiritually, he also protects both physically and spiritually. In the first place, biblical men are to provide physical protection for women and children, and especially his own family. If there is a physical threat of any kind... Mature masculinity senses a natural God-given responsibility to step forward and put himself between that threat and the one he's protecting. So many applications for this, it's hard to know how to illustrate it well, but I've always appreciated this one, Uh, so I didn't come up with this, but this this is a popular one. I use it all the time in premarital counseling and so on. If you and your wife are in bed at night and you hear a noise, And it sounds like someone may be breaking into the house. You don't turn to your wife and say, honey, we are equal image bearers of almighty God. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. I wouldn't demean your self-worth by insisting that I go and check on this noise. I went last time. This is an egalitarian marriage, so let me know how it goes. It doesn't matter if you're 5'3 and 120 pounds and your wife is a black belt in jiu-jitsu. It is hardwired into your soul that as the man you go and protect your wife. But it doesn't just have to be in in the marriage relationship. If another man is physically threatening a woman, whether she's related to you or not, the manly thing to do is to divert that threat from her to yourself, which again... Just, just as a parenthesis, just imagine how uniquely corrupt it is to be a man as the agent of that kind of violence or abuse. It's just the perfect opposite of what you were created to be as a man. And so, what are you to be? The one who takes that threat onto himself? It, you know, th- that's one example. It, it can be something as simple as walking a classmate or a coworker to her car if it's after dark. Uh, It can mean uh, standing on the street side of the sidewalk. Men always do that. Stand on the street side of the sidewalk. And it has nothing to do with capacity or competency. John Piper put that helpfully. He said, women and children are put into the lifeboats first, not because the men are necessarily better swimmers, but because of a deep sense of honorable fitness. He says, it belongs to masculinity, to accept danger to protect women. That is just so right. In July of 2020, a six-year-old boy from Wyoming named Bridger Walker saw that a German shepherd was charging at his four-year-old sister and he instinctively jumped between her and the dog. And the German shepherd bit him numerous times on the face and on the head and he will always have the scars. He, he survived But he wound up needing 90 stitches in his face. When his family asked him why he put himself in harm's way to protect his sister, he said, If someone had to die, I thought it should be me. And though he was only six years old, that boy behaved more like a man than many of the adult males that are heralded as heroes and role models in our day. It belongs to masculinity to accept danger, to protect women. It doesn't matter how physically strong you are. It doesn't matter what size you are. It matters that God has made men to be protectors. And just like was true for our Savior, we ought to reason that if someone has to die, it ought to be us. It ought to be men and not our wives or our sisters or our mothers or our daughters. But then not only are men to provide physical protection, they are also to provide spiritual protection. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where we get that classic exhortation to act like men and be strong, the first command in that series is be on the alert. Men are commanded to be spiritually watchful. You are to have an alertness, a sobriety a readiness about you so that you can spy out the spiritual dangers that threaten those you're charged to lead, to issue warnings and perhaps even intervene so that no spiritual harm comes to your loved ones. And the spiritual dangers that threaten the Christian family are ever-present, not only from the wicked, demonic thinking of the secular culture that assaults your family's minds through the various media, movies, TV, Internet, the news. But also from the spiritual dangers of the false teaching of professing Christian teachers and preachers that threatens to corrupt one's understanding of sound doctrine. This means, men, that you will need to do what Paul says to Titus in Titus 1.9, to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that you will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Men, you must know your theology. You must know what the Bible teaches about God and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit and about the Scriptures themselves, about man and sin and salvation, about the church and about spiritual gifts and men's and women's roles and about the last things. Why? Not because you might ever teach a Sunday school class. Or lead a Bible study, but so that you'll be able to teach at least your family the truth and protect your family from error. Error that, if embraced, leads to the shipwreck of faith and the destruction of souls. They're your responsibility, men. Paul says it to Titus in the next chapter as well. He says, older men, Titus 2.2, must be sound in faith which is to say sound in the faith in that body of doctrine that was once for all delivered to the saints and then he tells the young men in Titus 2 7 they must have purity in doctrine and so brothers you are the resident theologian in your home be a good one So that when Satan, who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, takes a run at your family, whether through temptation to corrupt doctrine or to corrupt practice, you're able to resist him. You're able to protect them. And that protection will often come in the form of bringing words of correction If your wife or your children are being taken in by some false teaching or they're tempted to some pattern of unrighteous behavior, you need to correct them. You need to man up. It won't always be easy. They will resist it. Ladies, don't resist it. Even if he does it wrongly, welcome it. Affirm that headship that he's trying to take, even if he's doing it wrongly. But men, don't sacrifice their spiritual benefit because you're afraid of an argument. You do it graciously. You don't run them over like a bulldozer. This is wrong. Fix it. No. You need to exercise the loving wisdom that Paul speaks about in Galatians 6.1, where he says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In humility, right, mindful of your own faults, you go to seek the benefit of your wife or your children knowing that if they persist in courses that are dishonoring to God, they will forfeit His blessing. Unchecked, unrepentant sin brings spiritual misery and you don't want that for them and so you protect them by offering loving correction. Being a spiritual protector also means that you're laboring in prayer for your wife and children, praying that the Lord would not lead them into temptation, but deliver them from evil, praying that he would lift up the light of his countenance upon them and give them peace, praying that he would satisfy them in the morning with his loving kindness, that they would live in single-minded devotion to him. You know how precious those prayers are. Being a spiritual protector will also mean setting standards for what TV shows and movies and music will be allowed in the home. Men, it'll mean setting standards for what clothing will and will not be worn, explaining principles of modesty and ensuring that everything appropriate is done so that your wife and your daughters are protected from becoming the objects of the lustful glances of unprincipled men telling them when they when they dress telling them when the way they dress means what they don't think it means or they don't realize it right. means being a spiritual protector means taking initiative in seeking reconciliation if you know that there's been relational breakdown somewhere you can't let that strife fester or it will turn into bitterness it means as i said last time taking the lead in resolving conflict racing to be the first one to say i'm sorry Will you please forgive me? And not sitting back with your arms folded, childishly pouting about how well she needs to apologize first because it was her fault. And it means cultivating an entreatable, sweet spirit that's eager to grant forgiveness as soon as it's asked of you, so that the sun doesn't go down on anyone's anger and the devil is given, therefore, no opportunity. The biblical man is a leader, a lover, a provider, and a protector. And the provision and the protection that he furnishes to his wife and family is both physical and spiritual. This is what we must be, men. This is the standard that God's word sets out for us to fulfill our calling as men made in the image of God. This is how God has designed us. And though we fall woefully short of the design that God has given us in practice because of the corruption of our sin. Remember, brothers... In Christ, we have redemption from those very transgressions so that their penalty is paid and that their power is broken and we don't need to walk under their power. And we look forward to the day when even the presence of such sins is eradicated entirely from ourselves and from the entire creation so that Christ will finally have what he's worthy of from us. But until then... We do walk in the strength of blood bought forgiveness of imputed righteousness to engage in the spirit empowered grace filled fight for holiness. We have been raised with Christ to walk with him in newness of life. And so where we see our deficiencies and where we see our failures and we see our sins unmortified, we can go before the Lord in prayer every day and do battle with our flesh. You want to be a warrior? Mortify your sin. Nail the remaining sin in your hearts to the cross, putting it away from yourself unto the honor of your king so that we might be the men that he's created us to be, recreated us to be, may it be that the men of grace church will be men let's pray father we think of these things and we can't help have our minds drawn to the lord jesus christ in his wonderful example the perfect man how gracious you are to not leave us without an example but to call us in every way you've united deity to humanity to pay for our failures and then to show us this is the way that you should walk We praise God for Jesus Christ, our great champion, the perfect man, our great bridegroom who provides and protects, provides for and protects his bride in ways that we can't even properly explain. But we feel it in our hearts, something of the fringes of your ways and desire to offer you a return of worship that you're worthy of. Would you give grace that we would become little men and women who look like Christ, that you would conform us into the image of your son. And I ask especially for the men that we would follow his example in leading and loving, sacrificing, working hard, providing, protecting. What a task. It's impossible to speak of these standards and not be humbled to the dust, but oh God, give grace. Give grace. Wouldn't it delight your heart to see images of your son all over Grace Church, all over Los Angeles, in the workplace, in the home, in the neighborhood. We want Christ to be lifted up in this place. Make us like him so that you would receive the the glory and honor that you're worthy of and so that the women of Grace Church would be served so that the children would be brought up rightly so that we might pass to the next generation that stewardship of sound doctrine and faithful living that will ensure your church's survival until, Lord Jesus, you come for us again. We ask for that day to be soon. And until then, may we be faithful. Give us grace to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.